Welcome to the podcast, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations, with your hosts, Evie Adamate and Richard Maranta. Hi, well, welcome back to uh, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. And uh, today we have a guest, Jaya James. Rick's going to talk to her a little bit about her her um, employment history. I just want to say she's uh, a student that uh, I read her co-op reports when she was at Guelph and um, was one of the brightest people I knew. And I tried to convince her to go to grad school. And it turns out that she had such good job opportunities that she decided not to do grad school. So uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to Jaya. Um, the chapter we're exploring in uh, Cocktail Party Economics is Chapter 9. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, where we look at the issues of uh, efficiency, how to make a really big pie, and then equity, how to slice the pie among uh, the participants in society. And so we're going to have a conversation with her about her views on efficiency, uh, a, a, an economy that works well, and one that's fair. And so, Rick, I'm going to let you uh, take it away. Hi, everybody, and hi, Jaya. Jaya James, um, so you're the executive director of Hope House, and I think that's it's a great uh, great name because we kind of need that, uh, I think, right now in our society, um, really important. And so I just want to get a sense of your journey. Um, your your organization is a nonprofit um, working with the community. I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, maybe you want to start with, you know, your role there, what you do uh, at the at Lakes, is it Lakeside Hope House? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. We usually yeah, just Lakeside. go by Hope House, though, because it gets a little, oh. <laughs> much yeah. of a handful. Yeah. So um, a little bit about what you do in the community and then maybe just a bit of your journey from earlier on, because you had some interesting experience in banking and agriculture, and now you're doing something seems a lot different than what you started with. All right, so um, very happy to be here today and really enjoyed economics in university. So it's good to kind of come back to some of those discussions. Um, so Hope House is a poverty relief agency in Guelph that works off of the principle that the opposite of poverty is community, that the resources you need exist within your community and that usually when individuals are struggling um, with a deficiency in an area is because the community around them is broken down in some way, whether it's their friends, their family, or the broader network. So we work really hard to try to rebuild that social capital. And so we have your standard poverty relief programs. So food programs, whether it's cooking or actually like a grocery store you can shop through, um, as well as we have a, a farm site that at Ignatius where we grow product and people can go out there and do that with a horticultural therapist. We have clothing, hair salon, but then we have a number of programs really built on helping to strengthen life skills so that people can move forward and make the changes that they want. So that's a kind of a capturing of Hope House. We just recently purchased our building uh, this spring. So that was a big step for us. So it's the um, 10 Cork Street East or the old Norfolk United Church as people who've been in Guelph a long time know. Um, and so that's kind of the bits about Hope House. So for myself, my journey, my mother always says I went on a downward trajectory, <laughs> and she says that always as in a joking way, um, from employment, started off in the uh, private sector with uh, the Royal Bank doing agricultural lending, 
Um, really enjoyed that, working one-on-one -on -one with farmers and food processors, um, helping them get their businesses going or ex often expanding their businesses. Um, worked with small companies right up to very large um, national organizations within Ontario because we have a very strong agricultural sector. From there, I moved into the public sector into food policy, did a lot of work on the local food um, in food, local food, specifically helped support the development of the Local Food Act that was supported by all the parties at that time. And then from there, took a little bit of time off to volunteer, um, helping to resettle refugees in Guelph. Um, and just so enjoyed that um, partnering with different people and working with so many different organizations that I then looked for a not-for-profit job. And so I've been at Hope House now for four years. Oh, wow. Great. And so uh, was that always um, sort of something in your um, uh, like nonprofit and helping refugees? Was that always something you thought about or was it at some point in your career you thought, you know what, I really want to do this? Or was it something that, you know, earlier on you were inspired by something or somebody to go into? Yeah, none of the careers I've taken were things that I thought at some point I'd ever do. Um, I knew the things that I was good at and strong at, and every job I've gotten has been because of some connection I've made. So when I was at university, one of my classmates got a job with the Royal Bank. Um, we were in co-op together, and uh, she said just knew that there was an, uh, they were looking for new trainees for their commercial banking program. And so she said, I think you should apply. So I did that. Um, when I was at the Royal Bank and I had a young family, and I wanted to be able to be home with them more. Um, it was a family relative that was working in the um, public sector who suggested that I might really enjoy the policy world. And when we talked about the different skills and stuff that it required, there were things that I was already doing within banking and had for my education. So that's why I went to that one. And then going into the non-for-profit sector, it really came down to never again thought I would be in that kind of field. Mm. But um, when I went out and was volunteering full time, I just so enjoyed it that again reached out to my networks and said, "This is, you know, my skill set. You know, what would you suggest?" And they said, "Well, I think you should try, you know, heading up an organization." And I said, "Are you sure about that?" And they said, "Yeah." So we applied, and we have been doing that since. So, I this is one of those examples where it's kind of who you know can really make a big difference because um, those people suggested opportunities, and each of those opportunities have been ones I've really enjoyed. So when I'm thinking, you know, I, I think you're in a unique position because uh, sometimes people stay in one sector and you've been in three. And um, one of the things as economists, we are concerned about how um, the right people are doing the right job, making the right amount of stuff. We think of that as efficiency. And then we worry about how, you know, we divide that up among people. And um, I guess I'm interested in, has your view on fairness changed given you've had different sectors that you've been in? How do you think about fairness now that you've kind of had your journey from private sector to public sector to not-for-profit? Yeah, I think it has changed over time. Um, it's been a real eye-opener working in the not-for-profit sector, specifically with individuals who've been struggling um, with not just financial poverty, but either deficits in their relationships or um, challenges with being able to express themselves emotionally in a way people can receive it. And as... Um, I've started to hear their life stories and understand the different things they've experienced. I start to realize that, you know, yes, hard work is a critical component for everyone, but some of us get um, 
a couple extra check marks, you could say, versus others. And that's what's really becoming stronger and stronger is my understanding of how many individuals who we see really struggling had really challenging childhoods or had some, and it's usually more than one. It's very rare you find someone that had this one traumatic experience and that that's the thing that derailed everything. It's usually a cumulative effect of multiple traumatic experiences and it's trying to get out of that cycle. So I think my understanding now of um, kind of the hands you're dealt um, and also kind of to some sense in the, in the chapter, they talk about luck, how there is more at play in that arena than I probably originally um, would have given credit to. Yeah, and I know you've also, because um, in recent times, Black Lives Matter has really been coming forward. Have How are you thinking through racism right now? I know that you've been the go-to person for some people to say, okay, Chaya, what do you think of the Black Lives Matter movement? And I know Guelph has had a very huge and successful uh, march. Um, it's sort of the hand that's dealt, right? So part of the hand that's dealt is the skin color you're born in, which is, you know, there's no control over that. And so I'm just wondering how you see fairness with respect to issues like racism. Yeah, that's been one that's been really top of mind for our family right now. Um, my boys are getting older now, so I have two teenage boys as of next month. My middle son's turning 13. And just seeing how the world interacts with them as they get older and larger <laughs> and seeing yes. how that's been changing. Um, and for our family, being a biracial family, I think it gives us a bit more of a window into things because I have um, all my children are biracial, but two of them look white or very light skinned and one um, looks like he's my coloring and he looks like me. So seeing how we can go into the same store and they'll treat um, my one son very differently than my other son. Not every time, but we do have these um, occurrences that happen and trying to now have conversations with our kids about how to address that, how to, you know, point that out in a way that someone might be able to receive, but also not backing away from the truth has been something that we're spending a lot of time on. Um, I think it's more top of mind for us now. And I think the other piece I've really realized is how much um, for our family up to this point and some of my extended family as well, we were really trained in the kind of, you know, don't raise the issue, just keep working really hard and keep plowing through. And the way you overcome this is by becoming really successful and um, kind of now having more of the attitude of, yes, we still really work hard and we still strive for success and the best that we can be. But if we don't actually talk about it, a lot of these behaviors are not necessarily, um, people aren't thinking of it that they're actually doing it. They're more subconscious. And if you don't raise it, they don't change. It just continues. Yeah. So looking at a system, you know, so I'm always conscious of the fact that we create an economic system and um, partly we're trying to figure out how to make a lot of goods and services and then how to divide it up to people and keep incentives in the right place. And and so I think sometimes we don't totally understand privilege as white people that we don't think about it like we don't think about it where because um, both my kids are mixed race. So. I've realized that among my white peers, I think about race more than all white families do because they don't think it's an issue. And so when we're looking at an economic system, what kind of things do you think can go into it to make it efficient, to make it, you know, working well, 
but still kind of level the playing field about things that people have no control over, such as the family they were born in, the skin their color they had, which class they were, whether or not they were born to money or no money. Like how do, what, what do you think are important things that we should, we should be doing as a society? I think the first thing I'd say is that everyone needs to recognize that systems are designed to kind of stabilize or lock in certain value systems. Um, that's just, that's the whole point of creating the system is to create that consistency and to create similar outcomes. And if we understand that, of course, when systems are created, which are kind of evolving over time, but that there was values that the society as a general rule held and believed, we shouldn't be surprised that within our economic system that certain groups are privileged more than other groups because that's how systems are designed to work. If we can at least acknowledge that, then I think we'd have less trouble with um, evaluating the system and starting to look at where we can make changes. Um, the biggest thing, I think, from leveling the playing field, I think we're kind of seeing it a little bit right now with um, the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit. Um, so that Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit spoke $2,000 a month that individuals received that had been laid off from work, significantly higher than if you were on Ontario Works or if you were on um, ODSP, Ontario Disability Support um, Pension, sorry, plan. And yet we know that we've seen a 185% increase in use and people registering to use our services. But I look at the number of people I know, like I have family members who were laid off that were in manufacturing and fairly high up, and I have number, my husband's family also has, and they're not having to tap in. And I think if that wasn't in place, that kind of tool, not saying that that tool was perfect, you would have had a tsunami effect on your social services within your community. And so we've been relatively stable um, despite this economic uh, downturn because there were some tools put in place. And I think that's a real challenge to us to look at some of our social net programs and say, how much energy are we expending trying to get people to go through all these different channels when if we actually provided kind of a basic income support, we could probably, in, we would, I believe, improve things for everyone. And I know that there is a sense that, you know, people don't um, have to work. They don't have a financial incentive to work. They won't work. But what we've seen here is individuals who are on, for example, um, Ontario Disability Support Plan, many of them volunteer. So of our community members, that's what we call individuals who access our services. Um, when we look at our volunteer pool of 150 people a month, and these are people who are volunteering every week, a minimum of one shift, um, four hour shift a week, 60% of them are individuals accessing services. So people want to have meaningful activity. Mm -hmm. And I think people undervalue how much people want to have something that they can point to and say that they did this, that this is their accomplishment. So it is a delicate balance because you don't want to have a scenario where, um, as they talk about in the efficient markets, you know, where the income so high, it's like a disincentive to work. But right now we have income so low that people actually cannot live healthy and are expending so much energy trying to access resources that even if they wanted to work, there is no time or capacity within their life to work because they need to spend all their life just to survive. Yeah. And that's kind of a shock for Canada. Like, you know, you don't think of that. Um, my parents are immigrants. So, you know, they came to Canada in the fifties and, um, and then 
you know, one of the big things that they pushed was education. So, you know, we all went to school and I mean, I think education for a child is one of the big levelers, but it's not perfect, but it's better. And to think that there are children or individuals who have to spend so much time just surviving, let alone thriving in a country where we have, you know, uh, universal education to a very high level, grade grade 12, is kind of shocking. I, I, was that a shock to you when you moved into the sector? Yeah, it was a shock of how much energy people need to expend. And then the other shock for me was when I started to connect the dots that whenever I want to make a change in my life, it takes more energy. So, you know, if I want to eat healthier, exercise more, get back to reading more or doing something different in my life, I realized to do that requires me to invest more energy up front until it becomes a pattern and routine. And one day it was like this light bulb went off and I was like, so how do we expect people to actually make changes when they're expending every ounce of energy to survive? There is very little capacity left to actually work on those changes. And then when you start to look at how our systems are built and the, um, you look at it from even an efficiency standpoint, and I know that there's been a number of economists who've done work in this area. Our, our system right now in supporting um, the lower income population is not efficient. And it's, I'm sure it's costing us way more money than if we actually went with a basic income. Um, and that I think is one of the examples of how you can be moving towards an efficient model and it can still have um, taken into account so social needs of a community. When you have people going to multiple agencies and different agencies all having to staff people to just do slivers, when if you could address it through an income approach, um, and then they'd be able to access the same markets as other people are able to access, you'd actually increase the efficiency within the system. Yeah, I, I do know I have some um, colleagues, economists who who, who are pro uh, kind of basic income, but they also worry that there's some groups that need extra help and then governments will abdicate saying, well, we don't need to worry about them because, um, you know, we're already doing this basic income thing. As, as So it, it, I know that it, it gets to be a complicated issue of trying to help people in a least cost method. And that, that gets tricky because you change incentives, which is really what this whole chapter is about. It's about how incentives matter, but we still, I, I think what hits me is that we're people. And so people should care. We care about society. So economists are not about caring about money. And everyone thinks economists are about caring about money, but we're caring about what we call utility, which is human satisfaction, that people are as happy as they can be given what we've got to work with. And so we're, we're, our goal is to increase human happiness. And I think that that often gets missed because we seem like we're these cold hearted capitalist people who are just after money and we're not, or that's not what economists worry about. Um, so that's just a little plug for economists. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just, I was just been thinking as you were talking about something that you said earlier, you, you talked about how you were sort of taught that, you know, if you keep working hard and you're successful, that's sort of like a preventative f against racism, right? Like, you know what I mean? You were saying that, you know, you keep your head down. You, yeah. But I thought that was an interesting, uh, because 
not everybody can be successful, right? We, um, we talked about, you know, there, there's luck involved and, and relationships that lead to success. We talked, we talked to someone earlier, talked was thankful for all the connections and the, the things that happened. So not everybody can be lucky um, or, you know what I mean? Be successful, even though they work hard, things come into their life. So that shouldn't be the only way that people get beyond racism or any kind of, right? Um, disadvantage, right? Yeah. And I think the, the big piece for our family um, was that success was measured by working hard. Like that was, if you were working hard, as far as it didn't matter what job you had, my father used to talk about this all the time. Like he was a social worker specialized in addiction counseling. He's like, if he lost his job, he's like, I will deliver papers. The point was to work. You just needed to work. That was how they defined success. Everybody had to pull their own weight to the best of their ability based on what was available. Um, so that was kind of the, the driving force there. And, and so in our family, we have people from you know many different types of jobs, but you were definitely judged on your ability to work or not work. <laughs> so you can work any type of job it is, but you better be working. <laughs> so that was kind of the big piece there. But I think the other part is that as a family, um, it was a protection mechanism as well. Like if you don't call people out initially in the short term, you're protected, you know, cause you're not drawing attention to yourself. You're not gonna, you're, you're less likely to have more from that individual or group. You can kind of meander around and keep going. But from a long-term perspective, if you're looking at the long run, it doesn't actually change anything. It just allows behaviors to continue. Yeah, I mean, the beginnings of all the big movies like Suffragettes was not pleasant, you know. No. And I'm really hoping, um, I mean, there's been lots of people who've kind of given me hassle that I, sub, that I, you know, am pro or I'm trying to be upfront that I believe Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. um, that they'll show me all their policies and everyone's getting into their Marxists. And I'm going, look, at, I view Black Lives Matter like I view Kleenex. I use Kleenex even if I'm using a different brand of tissue. Yeah. I want to say black lives matter. Like yeah. I'm not going for the brand. I'm going for the idea. <laughs> and yeah. so I, and if that is a shorthand that's going to communicate to people that I think this is important, then I'm going to speak up and say, uh, no, let's stop this stupid racism. It's actually not helpful uh, because it's holding people back who could bring a lot to the table and uh and increase our the size of our pie like the yeah. pie could get bigger if we could bring all these talented people to the table so let's figure out how to do that without you know i mean there's lots of studies that have shown if you're in a if you're in a rich white family you, if your iq is lower you'll do better than being in a poor black family where the iq of the student is much higher and it's because the family network is what's yeah. giving you success and these networks really matter so i really agree with your philosophy of hope house that it's mm -hmm. about people are not islands they're in communities mm -hmm. and these communities really matter so it how do we strengthen community so that people don't get left out and left sort of uh, adrift out there all by themselves which must feel so hopeless like mm -hmm. do you meet a lot of people who just feel hopeless um there definitely is moments in individuals lives where they're feeling hopeless and frustrated about things um but the tenacity that i find within this population is huge um, they're doing the best they can with the resources they can to go forward and they do have 
ideas and visions and plans of what they want to do. And it's to me really interesting to see how if you are able to create space in their life by reducing that amount of work they have to do to find food or clothing or even support, you know, people to bounce ideas off of. So one of the things we talk about is many individuals who are low income coming to education may not have had a family member ever go through college or university. My parents were both the first ones in their families for going through that. So they kind of had to pave the way and figure out the rules of engagement within those institutions, like how you apply and um, how you you know go to classes in certain ways and all those pieces. And so even just connecting people up with someone who has gone through that to help them actually figure out and understand and decode what it is that they're experiencing, because they may, based on all their previous life experiences, look at a scenario very differently than someone who's had family members go through university and college mm-hmm. and just go, oh no, what's really happening is this, or what they think you're supposed to know is this. And my favorite one is the fact that if you're in middle income or higher families, you know that there's always more than one door into college or university. It's not just about writing the, you know, writing your exams or submitting in your marks. There's also, you can apply as a mature student, you can apply under, you know, there's grants, there's all these different things that you can look, or you can just take a course here and course there to get your, you know, self um, up to a certain level so that you can actually apply through the, you know, the regular channel. But many individuals who've never had a family member go through think that if they get turned down through, you know, going through the Ontario Application Centre for Universities, that that's it, it's done. There's no other way, there's no other path, there's nothing else they can do. They don't know, maybe they could upgrade at college. And so that's the piece that um, your community can actually bring to you. And then as you were saying, as a result of that, you have individuals with way more potential and capacity than what is being exercised because they don't know how to actually um, access the resources that would strengthen and build um, up those skills. And so that's why education is, as you said, like it is the one of the major leveling tools, but it's also one of the tools that can change things for families. And so in our family, when I look at my mom and my dad, first people in both their families to get a university education, um, both their families were by all standards at that time considered low income. They lived a solidly middle income life. And they also helped siblings get into solidly middle income you know, situations and were able to support other family members and support friends through that. So they not only changed what their future was for them, but they were also able to support their family in moving. And so now everybody in their families are pretty much middle income, either Canadian or American. And so that's how one tool, um, when people are able to access it fully, can change. And it wasn't just about accessing the university, but also having mentors there. So my father had the Dean of Women, ironically, was his mentor at the, uh, the uh, university, Port Val- well, Port Valley College, where he went. And she um, made a concerted effort to have him check in regularly and make sure that he was on track and that, you know, he was doing well, that he had found employment because he needed a job in order to stay there. So it's kind of the combination of those things, being able to access the skills, things to help build your skills, and also having the people to support you in going on a path that hasn't been done in your family before. This is so cool. (laughs) Well, I have to say, um, you know, I'm very proud of you, you know, because uh, I remember you as the student across the desk, you know, figuring out what courses you're going to take or uh, figuring out what your co-op was and um, realizing back then I went, 
she's pretty special. So uh, I'm really pleased that you're doing such great work. Um, and, and in some ways, thinking of it, I think, like an economist, you're actually trying to put um, systems in place so it isn't a handout, but it's really um, a hand, a, a, yeah, a hand up. It's yeah. trying to get people to be able to make their own choices, uh, maximize their own utility subject to budget constraints, right? Yeah. Do what you need to do, not tell you what you want or what you shouldn't want. You get to be who you are, but we want to help you, um, you know, live a, a decent life. And yeah. I think that that's a really great, great way to go. So anyway, uh, we are going to uh, close this episode. I just want to say thanks to Jaya James for uh, coming. And Thank you for uh, me. yeah, so we'll have to connect again and um, and hear more about your your work. And we hope that you are an inspiration to the people who are listening to this uh, podcast, um, that they can see. Uh, how um, how you can be a force for good, you know, in this world and still have a good life yourself. So, and that's it. So all the best and uh, join us for our next episode of Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. Mm -hmm.